Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Welcome, everyone. Please stand, and, and we'll begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. We read in sacred scripture the holy author saying praise to God for having made us wonderfully and fearfully made. And so, dear Lord, as we study your creation, how you have made mankind in your image, may we indeed be inspired to give you praise and glory and to return to you the gift that you have given to us by sacrificing ourselves as your Son has given us example. And we ask all this through the prayer he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father Bears. I want to also thank Father and, and, and thank Father Pekorski for opening up St. Michael's to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Our speaker tonight received his Ph.D. in philosophy from the Catholic University of America in 1997. He has written and lectured on various topics including virtue, culture, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. I think those are all topics that you've spoken for the Institute of Catholic Culture on. Uh, his book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was republished in 2010. He is a third order lay Dominican, uh, and teaches philosophy at Christendom College, an avid gardener and hunter, lives with his wife and five children in the Shenandoah Valley. Please welcome back Dr. John Cutterback. Thank you, Sabatino. Sabatino uh, mentioned that I, I have five children. I'm actually blessed uh, now to have six children. We're, we're expecting uh, another. And um, Thank you. Um, Yes, there was a great moment yesterday in class where we were talking about the theme of the common good. And I, I was explaining how when you have what's called the common good of a community, it's, it's a very unique kind of good because it can be shared in by many. And it's so rich that it is not diminished by being shared in by many. Whereas what we would call just the good of a collection actually is diminished by more people kind of taking part of it. And so one of the great examples of a, of a common good is the common good of a family, which of course is, to use the term of the philosophers, is communicable to many. And so I was able to share with them. I, I experienced this in a unique way now where after my youngest of five right now is six years old. So after six years, we're, we're very excited to be uh, expecting another child. And now already, though it's only three months old at this moment, already the common good of our family is able to be shared by more people than it had been shared in before, even starting, as it were, so, so early. And, and the common good is, sh is actually enhanced by being shared in by more. Isn't that a beautiful notion? So in any case, th thank you. We basically have before us an impossible task, uh, but Sabatino is known for imposing impossible tasks upon um, those who come here, and I, I am going to dash in like a fool and, and give it a try. But basically, Sabatino said to me, well, wh why don't you just take the main points from your course on human nature and just condense them? <laughs> That's a brilliant idea, Sabatino. I'll do just that in 45 minutes, too. So, um, if you will pardon me, there, um, I, I want to say up front, a, a little bit of a weakness of what we're going to do is that it is going to be a little bit of a, 
of a whirlwind overview. And so we're not going to be able to go super deeply into anything in particular, but I really do hope that we will be able to cover a few fundamental things that will, I hope, deeply enhance your understanding of the amazing gift that God has given us simply in who we are. If you don't have a handout, I believe there are a few more. I'm going to be referring to it a little bit. First of all, I just want to start with one of my favorite quotes from Shakespeare. What a piece of work is man. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculties. In form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. Just one thing to note in that amazing quotation is angels and animals. There's nothing quite like us. We are akin to the angels and we are animals. And as we, we go along, I, I, if that arouses in you a sense of wonder, then I'm glad, for it should. For indeed, things like that are, are worthy of being wondered at. We, I think, to the extent that we are not amazed, truly moved by wonder, by who we are, it means we're missing something. For it really should be a source of ongoing wonder. The overview for the next couple sessions after this, what we're going to do tonight is what I'm calling fundamentals of human nature. The kind of whirlwind overview of a kind of who is the human person, talk a little bit about the soul, talk a little bit about different powers, talk about how they can all fit together. Then the main burden of the next two sessions will be more the virtuous life aspect of what does it look like when human nature, as it were, is running well. And that's exactly what the philosophers call the virtues. So what we do tonight is the necessary background for being able to really appreciate what is meant by the virtues, which we'll look at in the next two times. And of course, the fact that you've come tonight means you have committed yourself to coming back the next two times. Otherwise, I will not forgive you. All right. First of all, I have a question for you. And I'm going to set a scene for you, and I'm going to ask a question, and I'm going to go a little bit out on the limb, and I'm going to ask you to actually participate, because I want to have a little bit of back and forth here. So here, here's the scene, actual historical scene. St. Dominic is dying, surrounded by the brethren, and he then passes away. Here's my question for you. Does St. Dominic still exist? St. Dominic has just passed away. And I ask you, does St. Dominic still exist? All right. <clears throat> Most of you are saying yes. Can we talk about that for a moment? Tell me if what I say right now is what you're thinking. Well, St. Dominic's soul, whatever exactly that is, St. Dominic's soul has gone on, and you know, that's really St. Dominic, so he still exists. I mean, is, is that more or less what we're thinking? All right, then, 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 then I, I have a question then for you. What does it mean to say that he died? Okay, so his, 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 body, his body died, but St. Dominic didn't die. Is that more or less what you're saying to me? Okay, so his body died, but St. Dominic didn't. Well, okay, then, then this is, is going to be my question for you. 
and, and, and again, a reminder, this is, I mean, we're going to do our best to have it be a, a philosophical consideration. Not that we can't make any ad adverts to a theological point, but we're going we're to try to take as philosophical approach as we can. You have confidence that St. Dominic's soul is still there, but this is the question I have for you. If you hold that the body has died, but as it were, St. Dominic is still fundamentally just fine, then what is the body anyway? Is our understanding of the human person that the human person is a soul that has a body, and really when push comes to shove, that body can either be there or not? Is that our understanding of the human person? So, here's the thing. If the body is essentially a part of St. Dominic, but the body died, then didn't St. Dominic die? I'm sorry? It's a limit of language. Well, what other way do we have to think about it than with language? I mean, or can, can you, I mean, what do we, we have a problem here, don't we? I mean, how, how, how can we try to solve this problem? Define death. Well, define death, but he, he has to... Well, okay. Tell me what, wh how shall we define death here? I mean, the separation of body and soul. So if we define death as a separation of body and soul, then that's what death is. Now I ask again, in view of that, did St. Dominic die? So, does St. Dominic exist anymore? Does St. Dominic still exist? So, I'm getting, I'm getting yes and I'm getting no. Don't worry, I'm not going to torture you the entire time, but, but a little bit of torture is not bad. Let me try to then sharpen the problem. If we want to hold that the human body is not essential to who man is, to who the human person is, then we don't have any problem here at all. Then you can simply say that the person is the soul. The soul was, as it were, using, inhabiting the body. Death is the separation of the soul and the body, wherein fundamentally then you say the body is what dies, the soul moves on, the soul is essentially who the person was all along anyway and so it's it's while it's inconvenient it's not that big a deal because who you are is most essentially the soul that's one approach to this question now there's another approach that holds that who the human person is essentially is soul and body in which case, it's not so easy to answer the question. It's not so easy to simply say, oh, well, that person, as it were, still exists. Just to say that without any qualification. I mean, almost picture the following. I, I, I don't at all mean to make light of death, but for the sake of our trying to understand the situation, allow me to, to put it this way. What if we get the report that someone has died in an accident, but the report comes as, well, so-and-so died in an accident, but don't worry, the person's just fine. No big deal, the person's fine, he died, but he's fine. Do you see how there's, there's, there'd be something that's missing there? So this is what I want to throw. I, my only purpose of, I, I'm getting a few confused and even downright worried looks right now. <laughs> Wondering, okay, that's the problem of inviting a philosopher. Let me, let's, let's, let's move towards trying to give a, a solution to this problem. What would Aristotle say? And then here's the thing. I'll tell you also what St. Thomas Aquinas, our greatest theologian, would say. And they'll be fundamentally the same thing. The human person is essentially a soul and a body. 
two principles of one thing. And something extremely dramatic happens in death, where you can say, in a very real sense, in some sense, that person is no more in that person's proper fullness. You can say, to be precise, the soul of that person endures. And that is very true, and that's critically important philosophically, and it's also critically important theologically. But that does not mean that that is the whole person. And so the amazing thing is, a philosophical insight here actually fits extremely well with the truths of the Christian faith. For one of the side point, one of the beautiful things of the Christian faith from the very beginning was the promise of the resurrection of the body. For the human soul, without the human body, is literally, metaphysically, incomplete. Take a look at the handout you have. Structure and Unity of Human Nature. Basic Philosophical Insight. This comes from Aristotle. Here's a little bit of technical terminology for you. He uses the term form and matter. Form and matter are two principles of one substance. Meaning of the term principle I put there for you. Root, origin, source. When he introduces form and matter, he loves to give the example of matter and form. The bronze and the shape of a statue. To help us understand what he means by these terms, form and matter, he refers to a statue. He says, look, if you have a bronze statue, you can say there's the matter of the statue, which would be the bronze, and then there's the shape. He doesn't call them parts. So you wouldn't really call the bronze a part of the statue. It's what he calls a principle of the statue. You wouldn't call the shape of the statue a part of the statue. Like a hand would be a part of the statue. But the shape is a principle of the statue. So we have the shape the form, and then we have the matter, or the bronze. Key principle, key thing to remember. Two principles, one substance. What does then Aristotle do with that notion of form and matter? He applies it not just to the statue, he applies it to all natural substances, including living things. There's a form of the living thing, and there's the matter of the living thing. And one of the great philosophical moves that ends up being central then also in Christian theology is taking the term form and matter and applying those two terms to soul and body. And so in the human person, there's what we call a soul and there's the body. And they are as form and matter, as though it were the shape of the statue and the bronze of the statue. These two together constitute the one thing. And if you were to have, if you were to be missing either one, you would not have that thing in its wholeness. And so I go, I go back to St. Dominic at his death. Please, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It is absolutely central. Yes, can we say that St. Dominic endures in his death? Indeed you can. But it really is central for our understanding of human nature to realize, to be precise, you say that you now have an incomplete and essentially incomplete person. For a soul without its body is essentially lacking something. For God has made human beings animals. And there's no such thing as a complete animal that doesn't have a body. <coughs> to go theological for a moment, God never intended that there would be a human soul without its body. In the original dispensation, there would have never been such a separation. It is 
a result of sin. The main point here is to see the beauty of two principles, one substance. We are essentially the two. Is everybody okay with that? Such that when we, when we speak of death, which gives us this opportunity to ask this question in a new, unique kind of way, who are we? We actually see a very rare situation. There's no other situation in anywhere in being where you have a being that can endure incomplete, where you can have a soul that is without its body. Such a thing is very unusual, and the, and the great thing is we know from our faith God has every intention of rectifying it, of bringing that back together. Under Roman numeral one, soul and body then are two principles of one substance. Human soul is incomplete in nature, we say. Incomplete in what it is, though it can exist without the body. The human body cannot exist except as actualized or informed by the human soul. So there is a, a hierarchy there. The soul is higher than the body. The soul is able to exist without the body, but it still is necessarily incomplete. You might want to add in something that I did not put in the handout, but you might want to add in. What is the definition of a soul? Someone asked earlier, and that is a very reasonable question. Generally, a soul is the principle of life in a living thing. The principle of life in a living thing. For starters, the soul term applies to any living thing. Any living thing must have an animating principle, something that gives it a certain unity, that brings it together to make it be what it is. Quick word on that. What gives us confidence philosophically that any living thing must have a soul? What gives us confidence in that is the uniqueness of life. That in life you have a certain unity and order in this being that is absolutely unlike anything that is not alive. There must be an account for that uniqueness. Very quickly, consider a tree. A tree, an amazingly complex being, has a unity, has an order to it that nothing that is not alive has. There must be something that is not just a part of that bodily thing that accounts for how it acts in the amazing way that it does. Have you ever stopped and wondered for a moment what causes a tree to act with the order and the consistency that it does. Aristotle was a great expressor of the insight. There must be some principle that he called the anima, that which animates, which we call the soul. So first of all, note the community in being, all living things. Human beings have a soul. Lower living things have a soul. It is to speak very imprecisely to say that what makes us different from lower living things is to have a soul. That's not true, to be precise. What makes us distinct is how we have a rational soul. So what we're going to do now is go on and speak of the powers of the soul. If you look again at your handout, I have overview of the powers of the soul. What do I mean by a power of the soul? The ability of the soul to be the source of certain kinds of actions. So watch, again, a little bit of technical terminology here, but I think that you'll appreciate it. Once we have the insight that there must, in any living thing, be something that we call the soul, which is the animating principle, we then have to proceed to say, okay, that same animating principle is also the source, then, of the various kinds of actions that this thing does. So, we are able to name different quote, powers 
of the soul by looking at the different kinds of activities that this living thing can do. And so what I've done here is outline for you on the rest of this first page something that we're not going to be able to talk about in detail, but what I've outlined for you is the different fundamental levels and kinds of powers that you can use this as kind of a reference sheet as to what makes us be both like the lower things and also different. So let's just look at it together briefly. After giving you the definition of power of the soul, I proceed to say, human powers are said to be powers of the soul since the soul is the first principle of life and thus the principle of all human activity. We traditionally divide the powers of the soul into three levels, vegetative powers, sensitive powers, intellectual powers. Vegetative powers are common to all living things. Powers of nutrition, growth, and reproduction. If it's alive, it has those three powers. The neat thing in how God has designed this, again, the amazing order with which everything is designed, as we move up to the higher kinds of living things, they always have all the powers that the lower do and more. So we have in us a power of nutrition. We have a power of growth. We have a power of reproduction. Going on to the level of the sensitive powers. All animals have some sensitive powers. Only the higher animals have all the sensitive powers. But the sensitive powers that are mentioned here are common to us and all higher animals, such as dolphins, dogs, etc. Fundamental distinction. Cognitive or apprehensive powers versus appetitive powers. That's the main division within these powers at the sense level, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a moment. Let's go ahead within them and note within the cognitive or apprehensive powers, we have what are called the external senses, touch, taste, smell, hearing, and sight. And then internal senses, imagination, what's called common sense, what's called the estimative or cogitative power, and then memory. We're not going to be able to give definitions for each of those at the moment, but I just want you to have them there in the outline. Then we go on to the amazing realm of appetite or the appetitive powers. On the sense level, we have what is called the sense appetite, the power to incline toward or respond to what is apprehended by the senses. That is distinguished into two kinds, the concupiscible and the irascible. I'm not going to go into that further today, although Next week, when we go into what the different cardinal virtues are, you'll need to be able to look at the difference within that sense appetite there because that will actually be the basis for distinguishing between the temporal, uh, pardon me, temperance and courage as cardinal virtues. We now go on to the level of intellectual powers. Here we come to the powers that are unique to human nature, and it is fundamentally two. Intellect slash reason, we use those terms interchangeably, and I give a, a working definition of what we mean by that here. The cognitive power that perceives the natures of things and is thus able to make universal judgments and reason to new truths. It also retains or stores knowledge. So you can speak of there being a certain memory in our intellect also. Pause for a moment. It's so easy just to simply say, well, human beings are different because they're rational. One of the central points here this evening will be to try to appreciate the amazing beauty, importance, and power of what we call rationality. Human life is all about this power, a rational power, the ability to see intellectually, the ability to grasp what things are, the order of things, the causes of things. Now the other power that is essentially connected to that is what we call the will. I don't know if you've been exposed to this before, but the fundamental definition of the will is rational appetite. To understand what the will is, 
we need to have come to some understanding already of what appetite is like on the sense level. Let's step back down for just a moment and look at what we said about the appetitive level there at the level of sense powers. Sense appetite, the power to incline towards or respond to what is apprehended by the senses. So, quick example. Animals have sense powers. Sense powers, first of all, of perception. So we, the, the big distinction here is apprehension or comprehension, perception on the one side, and then appetite on the other. So the main thing I'm going to ask you to remember is the two A's, apprehension and then appetite. So where there's the one, there will be the other. They're necessarily tied together. They always go together. Look in the lower animals. I shouldn't say the animals because, again, it's we are animals. In the lower animals, we first of all see they have the amazing power of, I like to act it out for my students, what is it when you get to animals that is essentially different from vegetative life? All of a sudden you have the power to perceive. Stop with me for just a moment, if you would, and wonder at what is perception or apprehension to be able to take in. Note the apprehend is from the Latin of literally to take in. This amazing power that comes in different kinds to be able to take in in some amazing way to apprehend, to perceive the world around us. Animals share that in common with us. The great thing is we're able to see something critically important about ourselves by watching them do it. But it also teaches us a key distinction in levels by seeing what they don't do. But first, just to see that fundamental distinction, apprehension followed by appetite. Animals, given that they can perceive and take in the world around them, they can likewise desire. Desire is appetite. They can want, they can incline towards things in the world around them. The animal can perceive food and thereby incline towards it. I like to try to act out. What, what does it mean to want something? We use these words all the time. What does it mean to want something? Think about that. What if I just asked you? I'm not sure what you're talking about. What do you mean you want something? What would you have said to me? See, the thing is, we'd probably just choose a synonym. Right? Well, I mean, I desire it. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, and by that you mean, well, of course, by that I mean that I want it, right? But, but, so, but think, I like to act it out by there's, there's a kind of <sighs> towards it, right? There's, a, there's literally an arcing of the being towards it, like, yes, that is for me. You see how the reality that we call appetite absolutely requires that before it, there was apprehension. There is no such thing as a being that wants something that can't apprehend it, first of all. You can only want appetite what you have perceived. You can always remember the two A's. They come in that order, apprehension and then appetite. This fundamental structure you see on the sense level. Animals sense something, and then they desire it. Apprehension, and then appetite. Same thing goes on us. We perceive things with our senses. You and I, ladies and gentlemen, just like the lower animals, have this amazing reality that we particularly have to reckon with in Lent called a sense appetite.
we have simply on our animal level, we have a hmm towards things that we perceive with our senses. We are the only being that has two absolutely distinct kinds of appetite. We have sense appetite and we have a rational appetite. Aardvarks and raccoons have a sense appetite. Angels have a rational appetite. We are this amazing creature that has both. One of the easiest ways to see that we have both is have you ever been in a situation in a restaurant where you know, the, the waitress comes and says, would you like some dessert? <laughs> now, no, to a human being, that's a very ambiguous question. Would you like some dessert? Every now and then I think what I'd like to do is do a little exercise with my waitress and say, would I like some dessert? Are you talking about my sense appetite or my will? <laughs> of course I want some dessert in the sense of sense appetite. What do you think? Obviously, there's the dessert. I'm not completely stuffed. Yes, I want it. But no, I don't want it. Thank you. <laughs> right? I mean, a human being should understand exactly what I've just said. Yes, I want it. No, I don't want it. The first was the sense appetite, and the second was the will. I will to not have this, which we express with that same word. No, no, thank you, ma'am. I do not want it. Are we lying when we say that? If I want it with my sense appetite, do I have to speak up and say that? Do you see how amazing it is that look at the levels of powers? We have sense apprehension. We have sense appetite, just like all the other animals. Then we also have reason, intellect, whereby we can understand things at a whole new level beyond what our senses perceive. And in a word, then what is will? When you call the will rational appetite, it is a level of mm, towards things at an intellectual or spiritual level. This is where things get incredibly exciting. Let's talk very quickly about an example. I want to just paint a quick picture for you and show you a few of these powers at work in this example. Picture, if you will, this isn't, sorry, this isn't on, on, on your handout at the moment just yet. Picture, if you will, the following scene. Father comes in from working. He washes his hands before dinner. As he's washing his hands, he smells the food coming from the kitchen. He desires it. He looks forward with anticipation to sitting down at the meal. He then sits down with his family. He thinks of those who have raised the animal, say that he is eating. He thinks of those who have prepared this meal in the kitchen that he is about to eat. Having said a blessing wherein he thanks God, the source of all blessings, he then sets forth into eating his meal, wherein he speaks with his loved ones around him, enjoying the food and the company at the same time. Afterwards, he gets up from the table, helps with the dishes, goes and sits down in a chair, and before he dozes off, he thinks back in memory to that wonderful time with his loved ones and he enjoys it again. If you will, very quickly, I want to just zip through there. I want you to see which powers of the human soul are at work. We basically just engaged every one of them. Look, smelling the food while he was washing his hands, okay? Exterior senses. Any animal could have done that. 
looking forward with anticipation to the upcoming meal, desiring it. There's this sense appetite, but there's also the will, the rational appetite of wanting, wanting to go and be together with loved ones. Both appetites looking forward, as it were, desiring it. Then thinking of those whose work has gone into this. Where has this animal come from? Who has prepared this meal for me? Who is the source of all these blessings? The amazing intellect that's able to grasp the causes, how all these things have come together, the love that has gone into bringing this about. There, the intellect is the key principle. Then, good conversation. Of course, good conversation, essentially engaging the intellect, but also the will that wants to be involved, that wills to let other people speak up, that is interested and desirous of knowing what they're doing because it wants what's best for them. Note how the intellect and the will is very much engaged in this amazing conversation at dinner. By the way, all the while, the digestion is going on. That's the nutritive power that we share even with the trees. Then afterwards, remembering, looking back. Remembering is done on a sense level. We can picture the whole thing again. It's one of my favorite powers. Wonder with me for just a moment. Close your eyes and picture a wonderful moment in your life. You have the amazing power of retaining sense images. That's what's called interior sense power. Okay, you can. You can open your eyes and come back. Don't stay there. You need to listen to me now. All right. <laughs> My students are very good at using their imagination in class, imagining things other than what we're talking about. But that's also a power of apprehension, to call back. Critical part of human flourishing, as we'll talk more about later, that you can go back to these wonderful things and, as it were, see them with your senses again, as well as then there's a memory on the intellectual level of retaining an understanding and being able to think rationally again those wonderful thoughts that were shared in that conversation. Note at that meal where so much was in common with lower things, including the trees, and our taking in something that we needed for our nourishment and digesting it, so much in common with the animals where we smelled something that was good and we had a physical frumph towards it in sense appetite, but note what was unique to us, all of the things that were most important in the little picture that we just painted of the real looking forward with anticipation, intellectually and with the will. The enjoying of this food is the fruit of loved ones and the resting in that that the rational appetite does, and then to be able to go back and, as it were, enjoy again. Note all of that as the rational powers of intellect and will at work. Take a look on the back side now of your handout, if you will, because I want to talk a little bit more about the intellect and the will, but before doing so, I just want to refer to a couple of other things here. And I'm not going to talk about them at any great length. In the third Roman numeral, I have immateriality and spirituality of the human soul. And under that I note, difficult but possible to prove. Not so difficult, what I mean by not so difficult, is not as difficult to see or understand and can be known by faith. I define for you immaterial, but then again, it's not much of a definition. Immaterial. Not having a material nature. Have you ever thought about how difficult it is for us rational animals to understand immaterial things? Almost everything that we say about immaterial things are by giving a negation of something material. We call the whole realm the not material. What exactly is the realm of the not material? Very difficult for us. But at this point, what I wanted to point out to you is, it is a central part of our philosophical tradition that we can show that the life principle in a human being is an 
material principle. The soul of a tree and the soul of an aardvark are not immaterial. They are amazing things. But when an aardvark dies, an aardvark dies. Truly, it is gone. There is nothing of the aardvark truly left. And when a tree dies, it is gone. But when you prove, and you can do this from natural reason, it's difficult. And I'm not going to try to do it here this evening, but I want to just point out to you, because it's an important part of a tradition that you know that it can be done. We can look at the intellectual powers, and from the intellect and the will, we can see that what has those amazing powers must itself be immaterial. Very quickly, let me just give you a hint of how that's done. A couple ways of doing it. Here's a hint. By looking at our freedom. The fact that a human person truly has in the will a freedom of choice shows that it must be immaterial. For whatever is material is ultimately subject to being determined by other material causes. If we were simply a material being, it would be impossible to truly have free choice. To stand above material causality, where no matter what happens to you physically, you always retain what we call freedom of the will, requires that the will itself be an immaterial power. We can do a similar thing with the intellect. But again, I, 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 th I would do you a disservice were I to make it sound as though this is something that's easy to understand or to give a proof of. But that's why here in the, in the notes I say it's difficult, but it's possible to prove. Not so difficult to see. What do I mean by that? I think all of us have a natural sense there's something more to me than what can be physically examined. And so we have a kind of natural insight into it that we don't have an actual philosophical proof. I go on to another point then. We can talk about that more in the question and answer if you so desire. Man is made for seeing. Intellectual knowledge is called seeing. I take this line from a great 20th century philosopher whose name was Joseph Pieper. He loves to say about human nature, you want to get to the heart of the matter, what is the human person all about? We can see that with all this panoply of powers, what this person is really designed to do is see is what we could call rational activity. And what he means by that is on the level of intellect and also will. There's a number of ways of trying to point this out. I have chosen one here, and that is in the notes there, you see that I put the line at the end of Roman number four, human posture reveals man as the contemplative animal. And what I'd like to do to try to give us a certain insight further into the hierarchy of powers in us, I would like to quickly look at the human posture. And I want to note that if you're interested to pursue this further, there's an outstanding book that is called The Hungry Soul. The Hungry Soul by a man named Leon Cass, where in his second chapter of this book, he examines this he, with, with a kind of medical and scientific precision, looking at what is unique about the human posture as revelatory of who we are and what our powers are. Here's the key thing. There is absolutely no other animal that whose posture indicates this being is all about the cognition of seeing. All other animals 
are clearly, by their posture, designed for two things. Feeding, or if they're the type that would be uh, chased by other animals, by predators, for protection. Their eyes are set, and all of their various organs are in a position to allow themselves to eat and defend themselves. How are man's organs designed? One absolutely key thing is the eyes are primary, and they are made to be able to look out as opposed to look at what is being eaten or look for protection. All other animals, either their eyes go right along the nose so they can see what they're eating, or on either side so as to be able to protect themselves from predators. Man's very posture says everything serves being able to see and then also communicate with others. One of the main signs of communication is the fact that our hands are in no way necessary for motion and thus they are free to do the quintessentially human motion of pointing. The fact that the human being naturally upon seeing something amazing points to it this is worthy to be seen. You know what that also reveals? Is our social and communal nature. Because you would never have pointed for your own sake. Our bodies are designed ultimately for the realm of being able to take in the amazing, beautiful reality around us. We are designed for seeing and then to be able to share that with others in communication. I go on to my fifth point of a few basic principles about order or hierarchy in human nature. There is a hierarchy of powers. Where there is a hierarchy, lower serves the higher. The higher is rationality leading to the conclusion that I put after the little arrow there, all in human life is for the sake of the fullness of rational life. Let me put this culminating point to you this way. Why has God designed us with this amazing panoply of powers? How does it all fits together. I present for your consideration the point that we just made about posture points us in the right together, in the right direction. Pardon me. All of the lower powers together are able to enable us to do that which our life is most of all about. Being able to understand and see the highest things with our intellect and respond to that in love with our will. Let me paint a quick picture then of what does that look like. I might just give you in closing a couple of images of how we can see that the flourishing human being is one wherein all of these powers in their hierarchy are working together. Imagine, if you will, for instance, the parents who are working together with their hands to be producing and preparing what their children need. Note how all of the lower powers are engaged here. But note how they are all raised up and fulfilled in the being able to have the amazing interpersonal communication that parents are able to have with their children when they share with them the fruits of their labor. And so the very strength 
that they have in their hands, the strength that they have in the various parts of their body, that they have the very digestion that they do. All of these things, the sense powers that have allowed them to perceive on the sense level and pursue with a sense appetite, has all come together so that they're able to provide for their family and have it come to a fruition in a full communion of, for instance, a meal. And so I want to I close with the meal as a great image of who are human beings and what are our powers. Think again with me, if you will, of that amazing situation where all of those powers that we have are engaged on various levels in that meal, but making possible the amazing joy of the interpersonal, intellectual communication and communion that is had in that meal. And thus I leave you with the beautiful Byzantine post-communion prayer that says, and I paraphrase, may I join one day the great feast where the sound of those celebrating around the table of the Lord never ceases. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Cutterback. We'll take our quick break. Basic rules. Let me repeat them for everyone. First of all, the question has to do with the topic at hand. It has to be a question. You can't take a breath. If it needs a comma in it, you broke my rule. And this is my microphone. Don't try taking it away from me. I hold on to it. Okay. We had a question right over here. When the body dies, is the soul not still intellectually active? That's, a, that's an outstanding question. Um, philosophically, um, there is not an answer to that. Um, that. Don't worry, that was philosophically, but theologically there is. But, but watch. The, what's called the natural mode of knowing for the human soul is to know by beginning with sensation. Animals begin with sensation. We are animals. Our intellectual life begins in what we say abstracting from what we have sensed with our sense powers. Given that, there is no natural explanation for how a human soul could know anything in separation from the body, which is an outstanding question because it's another thing that makes absolutely clear that it is a terribly unnatural state for the soul to be independent of the body. So for Aristotle, imagine the following, if you would. This is what's so utterly amazing about Aristotle's insight into human nature. He could see that all the following are true at the same time. I mean, his natural mode of knowing is to begin with sensation and then go on to intellectual thought. Given that we are intellectual, our soul must be immaterial and therefore immortal. And so Aristotle could understand, and he held that, when the body dies, the soul would endure. But, given that its mode of knowing is to begin with sensation, it, though it can endure without the body, it would have no way of knowing. St. Thomas, theologically, is fully aware of that, and in answering that question, he simply says, God gives a supernatural mode of knowing to the soul that is separated from the body, otherwise it could know nothing. So God simply gives it a higher mode of knowing that is beyond the natural human mode of knowing. Sometimes it makes people squirm a little bit, but though we know that the saints in heaven are happy right now, but there is something missing. But we know by faith there, there has to be something missing, otherwise God wouldn't have made such a big deal of, I will give you your body back. It's not an unimportant thing. Imagine the joy one day when everyone together, God willing, we will be together at the moment and we get a glorified body back.
I mean, imagine Whew, what that will be like. I have a question. I rarely ask questions, but go, go right ahead. Um, you talked about the powers that um, that are lower that the the higher the higher have the lower powers, but um, like an angel wouldn't have the sense powers, like sense appetite and things like that. Right. Okay. So the this is the. We can say that in the beautiful order, the human nature, the human person, is right which at the level that joins everything together. So the fact that we have the powers that make us be like the lower things, but then also the powers that make us like unto God as well as like the higher things, you can say, is what brings the whole universe together. I would put it this way. There is no reason for the lower parts of the universe that don't have rational powers except as being able to be raised up to a new importance as serving rationality in us. The angels are at a higher level where they don't, it's not necessary as it were that they have those. God has called them to a higher state yet. But we're able to, as it were, to bring it together where it makes sense, I'd say, that the angels and trees are in the same order of things that wouldn't make any sense unless we were there. We who can communicate with angels and we to whom trees are important. So we are the bridge, and that our being the bridge is especially instantiated in our having those powers in common with the higher as well as, 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 well as the lower. So there's not a need for the angels to have those lower powers, too. Could you comment on the relationship between the appetite and the apprehension? Um, uh, okay, thank you. And, you know, because I, I actually, I had, I had said that I want you to um, remember those two A's of appetite and, and apprehension, or rather, I'm putting them in the right order, apprehension and then appetite. And let me, and, the, and if I may put it, um, if I might take the liberty of, of emphasizing the apprehension aspect. One thing I didn't come back and focus on as regards all appetite is, of course, it being rooted in having first seen something in apprehension, being able to respond to that. Here's the fundamental structure that is, is unique to appetite. It takes two fun fundamental forms. Appetite, when what it wants is not present. It takes the form of what we call desire, moving towards trying to make it be present. When what it wants, what it loves, to use a very important word, especially when you come to the rational appetite, when what it loves is present, then it no longer needs to desire, and there's a whole new activity that is called resting in. Appetite, when what it loves is not present, it desires or wants it. When what it loves has been achieved or is present, it rests in it. And why do I want to particularly emphasize this for you is because of this. That is what appetite ultimately is all about. At some point, desire is fulfilled. And there's no more point for desire when it comes to fulfillment in rest. For if, I, if I may go theological for just a very quick moment, in God, God has a will. From all eternity, he has a will. In himself, he desires nothing. For desire implies that you want something that you don't have. What does his will do? Appetite, when it has what it loves, it rests in it. And this is a willing. This is, if you bear with me, do you see what does love most of all do? It rests in the good of the beloved. This is what appetite does, even on the sense level. What is, what's rest on the sense level? The pleasure of enjoying something. With your appetite, you want the food. When you have the food, your appetite says, 
mm, I've got it. It's good. You delight in it. That's what we call pleasure. On the intellectual level, the will. Likewise, it says, ah, when it rests in what it loves. And that is what the will is ultimately designed to do. To rest in, indeed rest in, seeing. That's how they can ultimately fit together. Thank you very much. We're done. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks a lot. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.